sort of this industry so how did you become a critic and, and a writer and, and all the different things that you do uh, you know all the way back to childhood so like were you influenced by parents that were creative did you have great teachers was it some event in your childhood that sort of took you down this path my mother was an artist of the um i don't know slightly more than hobbyist sort and she started out as a, as a school teacher and had art in her background from from college and then i went to journalism school and uh got the media bug and ended up in my mid 20s working in the national social justice world in in washington dc are you from dc no i grew up in san francisco outside, I was gonna say. in the san francisco suburbs how long were you in D.C.? Uh, almost 20 years, 18 and a half, 19 years. I grew up in Arlington. Oh, I know it very well. Mm -hmm. And then when 9-11 hit, it, it seemed like work was going to be slow for a while. Um, it didn't seem like a moment when social justice was likely to... Uh, advance in the ways we were working on advancing it. it turned out, you know, that the Bush administration overreached enormously and there, that there was plenty of work to do. No. But, um, yeah, I know, right? So in that, in that um, you know, interregnum, it seemed like I, you know, I was going to have some free time. So I just started kind of, uh, I mean, this was in the very, very, very early days of blogs. So I just kind of started what I didn't really even think was a public blog. This might have been before Google, too. And uh, and yet people found it somehow. And within a few years, people were asking me to write um, about art. And then the podcast started much later, you know, a decade later in 2011, when I was looking to, to get out of writing criticism. I kind of lost faith in criticism, I had found that it had, was then increasingly becoming a mere rote tool for promotion rather than thought and i think that's accelerated since um mostly mostly due to the influence of, of the art market in, in in especially in new york uh and so i uh, decided i wanted to get out of um writing on a daily basis and writing criticism and knew i wanted to write a book but it, 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 and also knew that i couldn't write criticism on a daily basis and write a book at the same time that i would my head would explode so Podcasts were just getting started back then, and I had long been kind of frustrated that the artist profile as, you know, that the critical artist profile had 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 kind of long since died um, to this day, really only the New Yorker runs them. And, you know, I think there's some room to discuss how well they do that. And I noticed that, that artist interviews um, had kind of either gone away totally or had been subsumed by the art market into um, a highly mediated, highly edited, inert form. Um, you know that they were only textual, um, and that they had been so heavily revised by all parties that they lacked verb. Yes, oh, absolutely. I mean, they've turned into basically just puff pieces. They're just. I mean, yeah. I haven't seen what I would call strong criticism in a very long time. 
uh, most of the articles you read. Like, I find that like when art critics go out and they do criticism, they they always still want to be somewhat polite and and stuff because. I'm sure their editors are always saying like, well, you can't offend advertisers and things like this. So like they can't, there's a certain line where like to a certain extent, like the traditional critics can't really give that constructive criticism easily these days. I don't think it's editor down. I think it's writer up. I think that's, I think that's a response from right. I I think that the milk toastness is from writers um, who um, are barely, if at all paid for writing criticism and that their avenue to getting by in the art world is to be promotional rather than idea-driven. So I had, from, from the years of working in journalism, um, you know, an, 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 a you know, decent Rolodex of, of people and just started working that Rolodex, you know, started the podcast out of that Rolodex and started getting pretty good guests right away. I mean, our first show, Chris Burden was the first guest on our first show. Who I love. Uh, yeah. Our thirteenth show was Richard Sarah. Yeah, no, I went to the San Francisco Art Institute uh, for my master's mm. degree, so Chris Burden was a big influence on my professors. So, yeah, oh, I bet. Yeah, and once really once we got uh, Burden and Sarah, we've had pretty good success. I mean, some of that is because I don't think there are a whole lot of people or places that ask for long format length time these days it's becoming more popular but it's not the norm no and we you know we, we don't get everybody we we, we we invite on but we get a pretty good percentage i mean I, I i hope that artists and art historians and authors and curators know that if they or think or learn that if they come on our program that the questions i ask and our engagement will be informed by thoughtful research rather than kind of making it up on the fly okay you so just hopefully made, that attracts people yeah that just made me feel bad because i'm kind of making this up on the fly i did I, you know. <laughs> well it's a little different well I, i've read I mean, a lot. you know i'm not I, i'm not richard sarah <laughs> well i've also listened to a lot of your podcasts and i've even used yeah, many of yeah. your podcasts as a professor in the classroom for my students Love as it. well Love so it. But I feel bad that I've not researched you quite as effectively, probably, as you do your guests. But I'm not sure how highly researchable I am. <laughs> I, I do have to admit, I tried for like two hours or so, and there was not, I mean, there was a decent amount of information. I know all of your books that you've done, and I know the podcast, and know that, you know, some of the places that you've been published. But the, past that, like, it was kind of hard to find out too much about you. You're a little enigmatic that way. I mean, there have been, um, you know, there are stories in old art magazines and all the kinds kinds of usual things, I guess. But um, I don't, I don't, you know, I think my work, I hope my work is more interesting than I am. <laughs> okay, well, I hope you're interesting as well. That's why I, I have you here. <laughs> so, so these days, what would you consider yourself? Are you, you say that you walked away from criticism, maybe not doing as much journalism, and you're doing podcast so are you a podcaster first and a and a journalist second sort of what's your hierarchy of what you do yeah, these I don't, days? I don't think I do journalism anymore I think to do journalism you have to report and I don't do any reporting um, I, I am still a critic I think there is a critical element a strong critical element to the podcast both in terms of the questions I ask and the process of researching those questions and indeed the most basic critical function and that is deciding who's going to be on or inviting deciding who i'm going to invite on to the show 
I, I, you know, I guess I'm just like a critic author historian type. So, well, then let's sort of focus a little bit more on the, the podcasting kind of thing. So like how, when you got started, because like I did some research on you and like, I noticed that a lot, the, the podcast seemed to be sponsored by large institutions. Is that correct? That's how I make a living. I was going to say, how did you swing that? Because that is like uh, anybody, well, anybody, whether you're a practicing artist or whether you're a podcaster, everybody wants to be sponsored by large institutions. I think just the way media work works, right? I mean, there were, you know, it's a show with ads, just like a TV show or a magazine, right? So I knew lots of people in the art museum sector. And also in in, in terms of American art media, American art media is overwhelmingly oriented around the commercial gallery and auction sector. And so that's who advertises in American art trade press. And so the museum sector, uh, which has a large and dedicated audience, uh, was, was pretty much you know, is lightly represented in the trade press for obvious reasons. So that, that was an opportunity. There was an opportunity there. Mm-hmm. So, and when you, you were talking about how you chose your guests, so what's some, when you're thinking about somebody that you want to talk to for your podcast, what kind of criteria do you come up with for uh, the most appropriate or best or most timely guests? We, we peg the show, you know, the, 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 the pegs that drive the show are, are the exhibition calendar um, and the publishing calendar show just artists i think are uh of interest um who have shows or who are in shows coming up in in art museums and kunsthalls in the united states or or authors of books that are new or fairly new in the u.s probably that simple (laughs) okay so like you you try your best to keep in a you know up to date with what's going on yeah, I, li- I I I spend a lot of time in um, in exhibition calendars. Okay, your book, your most recent book, the Carlton Watkins. Did I pronounce yep. it correctly, Carlton Watkins? Oh yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. When it comes to something like that, like I always wonder, how do you come to creating a book like that? So, what was the original sort of impetus to create to? Because you literally could have chosen well any artist or photographer in the world, and you chose. Carlton Watkins. Why? When I wrote as a critic, I was always interested in the place where artists engaged with and indeed often influenced um, the country or world around them. And there is no better example in American history um, of an artist having an impact on nation and indeed world than Watkins. His work, uh, more than any other single factor, motivated the invention of the National Park at Yosemite between, you know, 60 and 65, 1860 and 1865. Um, His work was hugely important to uh, early American science, early to middle American science. Um, It was hugely important to um, turning California from a mining state into an agricultural state. His work was hugely important in convincing people that California's deserts could be made to bloom. I mean, there are, you know, umpteen ways in which he changed America. And so uh, I I also knew that while there had been a couple of particularly good historians of Watkins's work, notably Jenny Watts and um, Christine Holt-Lewis, that the Watkins had been kind of errantly often historicized. 
uh, I was not the only one to have noticed this. The great photography scholar Peter Palmquist, who first wrote about Watkins in 1983, mm-hmm. um, had, as the years went on, realized that um, Watkins was in need of, a, of, a, of an update. And so there was, and of course, Palmquist tragically died before he could do it. So I knew why, I, I knew that I knew there was a lot of space there to operate and that he was really important. And of course, it helped that the major institutions that hold the most of his work are all open content institutions so that the amount of money I would have to spend on on image fees and such was, was going to be quite small. I mean, you know, that, it could, that could have run into the thousands of dollars if I'd been writing about somebody else, right? Many thousands of dollars. Absolutely. Licensing fees are not easy to, or inexpensive. And I grew up in San Francisco, and you see a lot of Watkins pictures in California and in San Francisco. Often they're uncredited, but they are, they're, they're kind of around um, a lot. I, was, I, I had a conversation before or after taping a podcast with the great Robert Adams in which he said, uh, yeah, I don't remember seeing any Watkinses or much being influenced by him. Um, and then I showed him a couple Watkinses, and he's like, "Oh yeah, oh I do know that picture. That was really important. And oh, that one, the, I, I saw that picture, and that mattered to me." So it was really until the you know '80s or '90s, or well, really maybe '90s and, and aughts, as the Watkins oeuvre came to be defined, that people realized what they were looking at. But yeah, it was just it was it was an open field, and he was obviously a very major figure. And you know, if you're going to spend five years, six years, seven years, whatever it was, on something, you want to take on the most important figure you can. And you've got to really love it if you're going to devote that much time to it as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I thought about what my next book or books after Watkins would be, one of the ones I thought about very briefly <laughs> was a Clifford Still biography. Um, but I, but, but Still is such a loathsome figure in all ways hmm. um, that I just couldn't fathom spending that much time on somebody who was so hateable eagerly hateable i'm trying to think of it like a good i i'm i feel like i'm i'm very intimidated at this exact moment i'm very scared like, <laughs> oh dear well, oh dear you, well you made you made me feel bad because like you researched more than i do your your guests which, <laughs> and, and, and well, i didn't mean i didn't mean that that way i mean i i just you know i i am uh when, when i have somebody on the show I mean, part of the fun of doing this show for me is, you know, just getting to curl up on the couch with an artist's work and just getting to to think about it for hours and days, hopefully, uh, you know, in, in studying the context of its making and the other things the artist has said. You know, I, 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 I live a, a kind of uh, research-oriented professional life whether it's books or the podcast and it's and i enjoy that part of it well i guess what i'm sure i'm trying to get, learn about is like a little bit of like okay so when you approach your podcast and you're doing your research and this kind of stuff like what are the kinds of things that you're trying to attain or understand that that isn't let's say already in their statements or already hasn't been written about them what's the thing you're trying to get from them during your time with them i'm trying to learn what i don't know which is probably where my journalism background and training shows through. You know, so sometimes it takes two or three questions of context providing to get to a question that I can ask an artist about something I don't know. But but I'm always interested in learning the stuff I don't know. 
Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I do, there are, there are interviews with artists wherein the artist is kind of called onto the mat by an interviewer and is made to answer to the interviewer's ideas. Here's what I, the interviewer, thinks about your work. Am I right? Or have I convinced, <laughs> have I convinced you that you're wrong about your work and that I am right? And so we try not to do that. I try not to do that. It's, so uh, I'll, I'll do that a little more with historians and curators on the show, a little, you know, a, a little more road testing of the ideas of authors and historians and curators. Um, but with artists, I, I think, I hope, um, it's mostly learning what I don't know. I, I totally agree. That's why I'm here, and this is what I'm trying to get from you. <laughs> Are you kidding? You you have one of the most popular podcasts. You have a podcast that I literally have used as examples of not only good podcasts, Yay. but 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 as a teaching tool to my students. So yes, you are. That's so, awesome. Well, it's great for you. Intimidating for me. You know what's really you know what's been interesting. One of the things that's been interesting about this pandemic period is. I'm not very good at keeping up on our podcast stats and the website stats and all that. I mean, the show goes out and I, you know, I, I don't learn that much from the stats. So I guess I don't spend that much time in them. But one of the things I noticed a week or two ago is that um, the uh, traffic we're getting from the, well, the traffic the website is getting, manpodcast.com is getting from um, the educational sites, you know, the blackboards of the world. Mm-hmm has just skyrocketed this semester. Sure. Um, so sure. that as professors have had to go to distance learning um, and, and indeed probably cannot distribute textual material to their students in ways in which they're accustomed to having, you know, assigning textual material that that they seem to be using us, which is great. I think there's, I mean, we've got 430 whatever shows. I mean, there you can, I think there's great stuff there. There is. great stuff there. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I've used it. I still listen to it. So what what's the future? Are you going to just continue on this this trajectory, or are you going to sort of adjust it in any way? I mean, you know, the world is changing right now, and so things are going to have to be different. I mean, you know, we'll keep doing the show. Um, you know, we're doing some bonus shows, or I'm doing some bonus shows. That I mean, one of the things I'm conscious of the podcast, hopefully being maybe maybe already being, is an archive of. Um, the art and art history of, of its time. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many archives there are out there of artists of this time that are as endless <laughs> as ours is, you know, that's, they're as long and, 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 and such as ours, ours is. You had the luxury of getting in early on the podcast sort of craze that now is hitting everywhere. Yeah. I mean, our, yeah, our big, our big growth was in the first three four years. And yeah, that's true. That was, that helped. I also had uh, hope. I mean, no, nobody listens to our podcast for me. People listen, people that listen, listen because they want to hear the people we have on. I mean, there's nobody who, who would rather hear me than Richard Serra, right? But we are doing these bonus shows during the pandemic because I want the show to have within it some idea of how artists and for that matter, critics, and, and we'll see who else, respond to the present extraordinariness. So we, we have a show that came out as we're taping this last night. Yep, I saw with, that. With, with uh, Mary Reed and Pat Kelly. 
mm-hmm. and Ursula von Reidingsvard. Um, and we'll have, a, we'll have a show next week again. Oh, no, maybe later this week, again, as we're taping this with um, Christopher Knight and Antoine Sargent. Um, and so we'll do, we'll do a few of those during the course of the pandemic, um, also kind of providing a free way for art museums to advertise and share with publics what they're offering while they're physically closed. So I don't, you know, to the extent that there's changing, it's kind of a, a, a an engagement with the present. I don't, I don't think what our podcast is is likely to change much during the course of its run. It's always going to be an interview show. It's always going to be oriented around the guests rather than the host. It's not going to be a storytelling or true crime kind of podcast because that takes time, staff, and resources I don't have and we don't have. Well, and it's not really the point of it. Is is you're right. not you're yeah. not doing again. You're not doing journalism per se. You're not you're not uh, trying to find out some deep dark secret about them. You're just trying to learn from their experiences. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the idea is you know one of the things that I hope the show does is you know so often artist Q and As are are simply experienced in typed form. So the humor of an artist is lost when you when you can't hear the joke or you can't hear the the way the artist says something, or um, you know it, it, when someone speaks, you can hear certainty and uncertainty and willingness and unwillingness. And as someone who uh, now writes books about the mid nineteenth century, uh, you know where, where of course none of this exists, I find I find myself often thinking, "Gosh, I, I wonder." I wonder this, I wonder that, and that you don't get from the typed record. So hopefully having so many artists and art historians on on tape or digital tape or whatever we call that now kind of provides a different and useful way into what they're thinking and how how and why they think it, because I enjoy that part of it. I mean, you know, sometimes sometimes you realize an artist is is as funny as, you know, sometimes if you think there's kind of a funny passage in an artist's work, you find out that they think it's funny too. <laughs> or you think it's funny and they think it's very serious. That's not that's, happened. Yeah, yeah. that's happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's happened. I mean, there are some artists who, I mean, you know, artists think in all different ways, right? Some are really interested in their work being open to different reads and to different address and some artists think that there is only one way to think of and consider their work and that is the way in which they have determined and dictated yeah i'm i'm always fascinated by some how sometimes an artist let's say their work might be let's say mediocre but their statement may elevate the work in some way or or even a curator's sort of statement to it somehow some the text that comes with the work can and elevate the work but also sometimes it can do the opposite you know, when I talk to classes at schools and such, I often uh, point out to artists how important, especially at the beginning of careers, it is to be able to talk about the work and where it comes from. And on our show, you know, we're, we're pretty much entirely mid to late career artists. So artists who have had lots of experience talking about their work, but still, even within that cohort, there are artists who are better at it and artists who are less, less good at it. And then, of course, you know, part of the the fun, I guess, of of talking uh, with mid to late career artists is trying to ask them things they haven't been asked before, and trying to make sure or trying to keep them from reverting into 
passages from their slide lectures. It's often possible to find a work from 2003 that they haven't thought about or looked at in a long time and to ask about current work in the context of that old work or, um, or the old work in the context of the new work. And quite often, uh, artists are very surprised when you found something like that and, um, and you get something really good as a result or you, get, or you learn something really interesting as a result. Artists, artists respond to knowledge of their oeuvre. And, and so I try to know the oeuvre. Oh, yeah. Artists love talking about themselves and their work. And anybody who sounds like they've at least done research or have some sense of it, they feel more uh, comfortable to, uh, sort of opening up and sure. talking a little bit more about with them. My proposal for Watkins, the book ended up being enormously different from the, from the proposal. Um, I mean, I knew that the work historians had done around Watkins was flawed and had lots of gaps and lots of misunderstandings about the work and the time mm -hmm. in which the work was made. But I still thought or believed or trusted dates and places and such. And, and as I got into working on the book, after we did the contract with UC Press. The more I worked, the more I realized I'm just going to have to start from scratch, near near scratch, because so much of the record around Watkins was was shaky. Uh, I mean, there had been really good work done on Watkins uh, and mining. There had been really good work done on Watkins and agriculture in Southern California and on Watkins and the California missions. But just about... I mean, a whole lot of everything else had to be redone from from scratch, and 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 I'm sure people will continue to, you know, I'm sure there are things that are in my book that historians will continue to revise because for so much of it, I was the first one there, and inevitably, when you're the first one there, you're going to get things wrong or going to be things you don't know. Of course, now the difficulty with some of that in Watkins is is anything before 1906 in California you know, the 1906 earthquake and fire in San Francisco took out so much material that a lot we'll never know. But I had, you know, I had a, I had a, um, a geographer after my book came out. So uh, Watkins um, made um, a series of pictures at and on Mount Shasta. And art historians had, have traditionally dated those to 1867, 1870, or 1867 or 1870, who knows? But those were the two two times he was believed to have been there. And in 1870, we know he was there. And so a geographer emailed me and said, you know, um, from, this involves lots of math, so I'm not going to be able to explain this very well. But from an analysis of, of shadows, time of day, the calendar, all of these things, mm -hmm. um, here's why I think those Shasta pictures were all 1870 and none of them were 1867. And so, you know, stuff like that will come out. Um, so it may be that while I dated Watkins's Shasta pictures initially to 18, the, the first set to 1867, that it may be that none of them were made in 1860. So, so you know, that kind of thing will happen. But um, Sure, yeah. Just, I mean, more, more even at this point, sort of technical and scientific research upon them versus a purely artistic research. Yeah, yeah. Although I think art, I, I think art historical research is coming too. I mean, very little 
historical work has been done into the relationship between Edward Mybridge's work and Watkins's work. And I imagine that that is coming in the years to come. Um, almost no work, maybe exactly no work, um, has been done on the relationship between Watkins's work and Ansel Adams's work. Um, thank you for I, the book I idea. I think that's coming. Thank you for the book idea. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm well, there are real... <laughs> The the Adams Trust has been um it's pretty difficult to publish other artists' work next to Adams's work, given the way some things are set up structurally, and that's I think what's prevented that. But the Moybridge Watkins thing, somebody will do that in the coming years and decades, I would bet. There are some ongoing projects uh related to Watkins and painters that I think will probably come online in the mid twenty twenties. Um, so there's a lot there's a lot more art historical stuff that 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 can and should and will be done. So a little bit back to some of the businessy kinds of stuff. So like the podcast. So you're you run it and you you seem to have a staff that helps you out with it. Yes, I have an editor. His name is Wilson Butterworth. He is awesome. He has been editing the show since I think our tenth episode or something. Mm-hmm. Since really early. Since since really really early. Yeah, that's a long time in the podcast world. I know, I know. So, but, but the reason why I ask is like, so what are some of the tips or tricks that for like somebody out there that does run some podcast about like what what did you do? You, did you have any mistakes that you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that, or any sort of uh, things that you're like, oh, this thing saved my life so many times. Audio quality is what listeners increasingly demand. Um, in 2011, it was harder to have really good NPR level approaching it's so uh, funny. Yeah. audio and quality. But we, that's, all, we all say NPR quality. It's very funny. Well, they spend, they spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars a year on it. I mean, you know, if, and I'm sure other, I'm sure you and other people who do podcasts have done this, but there's an enormous difference between say NPR's audio quality and the BBC's audio quality. And that's because NPR has just prioritized it in a different way than the BBC has. Oh, yeah. And uh, and so listeners expect that. And so as technologies have come online, we've embraced them as quickly as we could to ensure the best audio quality we can have. I mean, you know, in 20, you know, in the first couple years of the show, it was unusual to have people on Skype. Um, but now everybody's pretty much set up to be able to tape on Skype which helps audio quality a lot. Um, you know, elderly artists, artists in like their 70s or 80s tend to still be on landlines. Many museums have put in audio studios. I think at least one put in an audio studio kind of because of us, <laughs> or at least at least with our having pointed out it might be useful to them, broadly useful to them beyond, beyond just us. So audio quality is probably weirdly a really important key thing. Oh no, I, I fetishize about it because I listen yeah. to podcasts as much as I also produce a podcast and I yeah. can't tell you how many times I've been listening to one and I'm like, how could you put that out with that audio quality? Like it's so bad, but people do. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 um, you know, at this point, you know, I, I you know, we have, we, we've spent years trying to make the, the audio quality pretty decent. So it's, I think we do all right at that. Uh, at least as, as well as we can with our budget. <laughs> Sounds great from when I listen to it. Oh, good. Oh, good. That's what we want. I, you know, the, the, the funny thing is when you talk to an artist who makes sound or makes video, 
um, they always have the best audio setups on their end. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> but when you talk to painters, you never know. <laughs> well, I, I mean, the way I started this podcast was is that I actually travel to the cities with an entire recording setup, and I go to the That's galleries harder. and the museums. But I love it. It's so much nicer. It's so much more intimate. Uh, I, this is you're only like the fourth person I've done this uh, oh, re- wow. remote with, and it's it's different. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't love taping in person because it brings in so many variables. Um, You know, the big one is especially galleries, commercial galleries. The sound quality. Yeah, because they're they're all built around hard spaces, um, hard surfaces. And so sound bounces around and that's really hard. I mean, there was one, we taped a show or I taped a show uh, with Julie, Julie Maritou at her dealer's place in New York. This was six or seven years ago. And Julie's a friend, so I felt um, like I could act weirdly. Um, and so the way we did it in her dealer's place was we kind of took books, not kind of, we did. <laughs> we took books out of the bookcases of the dealership's library and stacked them up around us on a desk mm-hmm. um, and then talked within our little book fort. Sure. As a way of keeping sound from bouncing. So uh, <laughs> that's hard. That's, uh, so, yeah, in person, sometimes harder. <laughs> oh, okay. And so you've got a huge library of, of interviews that you've done. So I'm sure there are plenty of things sort of off the record or behind the scenes that you've probably never talked about. Do you have any good stories of like conversations or circumstances that occurred off the off mic? You know, one of the difficult things about doing a weekly show um, is that you don't remember because there's so many. You don't remember because there's so many. I mean, we do we do 45 new shows a year, which means 90 ish uh, interviews a year, which means, you know, almost two a week. And so let me think for a second. Uh, When Nayland Blake was on a couple months ago. He and I know a lot of the same people from outside the art world, and we found they kept coming up while we were talking, so we would end up telling side stories about them, and um, I'm sure my editor had a feel. Actually, maybe I pre-edited that. Oh, there's a... I mean, this is sort of in the show, but it it can't be seen in the show, of course. So we've had... Sheila Hicks has come on the show a couple times. Uh You know, Sheila Hicks is a, a, a true, true, true grand dame. And so we had her on, she came on many years ago, maybe in, I don't know, 2013 or so, 12 or 13. And, and the first time she came on, I had the flu. I, I, I had a really bad flu and I was having trouble sitting up. I was so kind of dizzy, but I wasn't going to cancel on Sheila Hicks. And so I kind of politely said, I'm really sick, but we're going to do this or I'm going to do this and, and hopefully you can carry me. And she did. And so five years later, there was a, a the, she had a, a, a show at the National Sculpture Center in Dallas. And, um, and so we arranged to do a live audience taping in the Nasher's Theater in front of about three or 400 people, standing room only all the way around the, around the place. And my second question maybe to Sheila was about these works she made called, that she still makes called Mini Maze. And they're about the size of your hand, maybe a little bit larger. And they're kind of how and where she tests out new ideas and has for decades. And sometimes they include thread um, and cloth. And sometimes there are other things that she weaves into the minimes, you know, Mm -hmm. objects. 
and and so her way of discussing this with me was she looked into the audience and saw a woman in the front row was wearing um, Christian Louboutins, you know, these $1,000 high heels. Absolutely. Or, or maybe more expensive, what do I know? And and so she asked the woman for her shoe, and the woman, bless her heart, uh, took off her shoe, her, her very expensive fancy shoe, tossed it up on, on the riser to me. I handed it to Sheila. I think that's how it worked. And, and then Sheila kind of did a show and tell in which she more or less destroyed the shoe. <laughs> and, and so I think some of that's on the show. Um, but yeah, that was pretty, that was, that was pretty um, wild and, and hilarious. Wow. But it, that shoe's now a one of a kind art piece. So it's probably I, worth the, more. The, the, the woman who I later found out was a Nasher trustee just thought it was the greatest thing, or, or at least made us believe it was the greatest thing that had ever happened to her, yeah. um, which was a generous letting, uh, at least of me, uh, off the hook. There's often on, depending on the artist, you know, with somebody like a Trevor Paglin, um, there's often a lot of Watkins chat um, off mic or off show, you know, where the artist will ask me stuff about my non-podcast work because they're curious about Watkins or something else related to it. Yeah, there's definitely off mic stuff. I mean, you know, a number of a number of artists who've been on the show are people who I know off the show too. Some really well, some not, some sort of well. When Rachel White Reed was on the show, I guess, I guess the museum in which she was taping um, hadn't told her exactly anything about our show and just told her it was going to be like a ten minute interview. Right. Um, and and so that involved some salvaging, and and, it, and ended up being great and and fine. Uh, when Wayne Tebow was on the show, he was 97 at the time, and so we definitely arranged to do that one in person. And I asked enough questions to fill an entire show, which is about 55 minutes. And then he quite seriously looked over at me, and he's like, "Is that all you got? I can, I'm, I'm good to keep going." And you know, I had more, mm-hmm. um, and so we just kept going. And here's, and here's, you know, 97 year old Wayne Tebow, and I'm wearing down before he was, which. I- <laughs> Oh, being a host is exhausting. Are you? I'm, it's more exhausting. It's a lot way of more people. Exhausting. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand that. Like being interviewed is actually kind of fun. You know, like you're like, hey, yeah, just talk about myself. That's enjoyable. Yeah, but, yeah. But like trying to no, keep up true. the conversation, keep up with the what, what the topics that are coming up. I mean, being a host is quite exhausting. No, thinking about. I mean, the thing that I think is difficult about it, and is, is much harder when we do live shows, is uh, in one ear you're hearing what the other person is saying and in the other side of your brain you're thinking about what you're asking next or your transition or yes i'm doing that right now i'm actually reading a little bit on your podcast on your website right now about david mizell as well david's great love david david david's an old friend so i mean you haven't seemed to so you have you have your existing the the watkins book but you're also doing a david mizell monograph also i have an essay i have an essay in it essay it's, that's in. that's yeah that's absolutely david's book um and and he invited me to um to 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 write an essay for that book which was great that was yeah that, i mean it's a great book it's a great project i mean obviously i love thinking about the american west and its place in american art and broader histories and and that project of david's is very much uh within that context i could have written um, you know, thousands more words um, on that. When I was young, I remember being in school, seeing his work, and just being like, "Oh yeah, that's great work." And then, you know, yeah, he's really twenty-five, yeah. thirty years ago now. 
Yeah, he's super. He's, 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 he's really good. It's always fun when artists don't do a lot of interviews and are willing to come on our show. John Acompra, for example, has, has, you know, does very few sit-down interviews these days, but he's been willing to um, come on our show a couple times, which is um, a real thrill. I mean, just like a real, real thrill. Terry Winters doesn't do a lot of sit-downs anymore. He, he's been on our show a couple times. Do you ever get nervous when you have somebody? Oh, yeah, all the time. I yeah. mean, like, you know, somewhere between all the time and every time, yeah. I mean, um, you know, like this week as we're, as we're talking, we have Ann Temkin on talking about Donald Judd. I mean, you know, Ann Temkin is Ann Temkin. I mean, she's the chief curator. I mean, I'm, Ann and I have known each other for probably 15 years, but she's the chief curator of, of MoMA, one of the smartest people we've ever had on the show, because she's been on a bunch now, mm-hmm. three or four times. Um, so, yeah, was I nervous about talking to Ann? Yeah, you, 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 you bet. It doesn't show. I'm pretty much always nervous with, I mean, I'm a little less nervous with curators and art historians than artists, but sure, I'm always a little, you know, whenever you talk to, at least for me, whenever I talk to somebody who I know knows more about something than I do, which is, you know, pretty much always in the context of our show. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. Like, you know, we had Alison Rossiter on a couple months ago, and I think Alison is one of just the absolute greats. And in the middle of our talking, in the middle of our taping, she, so there's never been a full career monograph of Allison's work, which is insane. There's never been a full career retrospective of Allison's work or, or even a broad survey, which is insane. Hmm. So I knew, I knew that. I was a little worried about that. And then as we're taping, she references a couple of things of bodies of work that I'd never heard of, had never seen could not immediately, you know, I, I, I always, when talking to artists, I have three or four screens open in front of me of their work, of, of and, and, you know, that I couldn't find quickly on any of my screens. And that's terrifying. So I just, you know, you just say, oh, I've never seen that. Or, you know, you have to be, the only thing you can do then in that, at that point is, is, is be honest. Yeah, try um, to be leading, try to draw more out of them to explain it a little bit more. Or, yeah, you know, just say, oh, I've never seen that work. Tell me, you know, it, you know what, you know, I mean, yeah, that's the only way to, um, you, you sometimes mm, that's a little bit more inevitable with artists who work in in video or film installation, not all of which is necessarily available to me as I prep for the artist. Right. I mean, often it is. Often it is with the more established artists who work in film and video and insta- in video and film installation. You know, their galleries have extensive, if not thorough, screener sites set up. But for younger artists who who do like Martine Gutierrez, who was on the end of last year, I think the end of last year, she doesn't show with a gallery that has the massive build out mm-hmm. that that you know somebody thirty years older working with a bigger gallery might. Yeah, no, I'm always I'm always pretty nervous. I'm always pretty darn nervous. <laughs> okay. It's good to know because like, you, you you edit it beautifully and it does not. Well, that's Wilson. That's Wilson. That's that's Wilson. I don't I don't get credit for that. Wilson Wilson edits my. Uh, my stumblings out. Yes, as I will edit my stumblings out in this one, which is fun. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's good for the listener. Well, I probably won't in reality, because after all, the podcast is called The Wise Fool. So part of me doing this is to be stupid uh, and make mistakes and know that the, most of the people I talk to know more than I do. Including yeah, which you. is why, you know, which is why I have the people on the show that we have on the show. It's because they've done work that's impressive and because I want to know more about it. I mean, 
I want to know enough to be across a microphone, but I also know that they know more about their work or their exhibition or their book or whatever than I do. Um, and it's a way for me to get to learn the stuff I want to learn. Thank you all for your support of the Wise Fool Patreon account. If you've not become part of our network, by becoming a supporter, you receive the opportunity to help in the choosing of upcoming guests, cities that I should visit, and also you can give me questions that you would like me to ask future guests. You can find us and support us at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the wise fool, all one word. If you enjoy the podcast, I would appreciate a five-star rating and please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of my many weaknesses that has become glaringly obvious to me through my insights from my guests is that my lack of professionalism in the business practices when it comes to my personal artwork. So I've become putting my work on sale on SachiArt.com. You can find my artwork available for purchase at SachiArt, S-A-A-T-C-H-I-A-R-T dot com slash Matthew Doles, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-D-O-L-S. Thank you.